Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations on all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I hear you're entering ministry, the woman said down the long table, meaning no real harm. Was it your own idea? Or were you poorly advised? <laughs> and the answer that she could not have heard, even if I had given it, was that it was not an idea at all. Neither my own, nor anyone else's. It was a lump in the throat. It was an itching in the feet. It was a stirring at the blood, at the sound of rain. It was a sickening in the heart at the sight of ministry. It was a clamoring of ghosts. It was a name which when I wrote it out in a dream, I knew was a name worth dying for, even if I was not brave enough to do the dying myself, or even if I could not name the name for sure. In the late 12th century, uh, there was a boy born in Italy by the name of Giovanni Francesco di Bernardone. I'm not Italian, nor do I speak Italian. I hope I got that right. But Giovanni was the son of a very wealthy cloth merchant, uh, and his family was, for lack of a better words, rich. And so growing up in the 12th century, as you could imagine, uh, I don't know, maybe you can imagine what the 12th century is like, growing up in an affluent home surrounded by gourmet food, bright clothes, uh, rich friends, Giovanni rarely had anything of need. This young man had the world at his fingertips, and the ability to fulfill all of his wants and, desi and desires at the drop of but a few coins. However, from a very, very young age, Giovanni, uh, recounting later in life, he, from a young age, he felt that there was uh, a hole in his life. And the sense, he felt the sense of disillusionment with the life of luxury. So one day, Giovanni, as the story goes, is in the marketplace selling cloth for his father when a beggar approached him asking for a few alms. And Giovanni at first gave a few coins to the beggar, who, just, uh, who then moved down the way. Uh, and at that point, Giovanni felt something. And I think this something can only be described as maybe, I don't know, a lump in the throat. An itching of the feet, a stirring in the blood, or a sickening in the heart at the sight of misery. However you personally describe it, Giovanni felt it. And so he left his entire stock of cloth, ran down the street and, to find the beggar, and gave him all the money that he had in his pockets. Now, of course, he was mocked by his friends, angrily scolded by his father for losing uh, the cloth and all of his money. Um, but it was this act of charity that Giovanni felt this pull on his heartstrings, as you might say. And he was unable to fully understand that, so Giovanni spent the next few years of his life trying to grapple with what this pool was, what this feeling was. So again, reflecting on his life years later, uh, Giovanni says, I spent some time in lonely places of the world, seeking wisdom from God. And these lonely places brought Giovanni face to face with some of the lowest of the low in society. Giovanni found himself uh, nursing lepers, begging with the poor at the door of churches. And then one day he heard a sermon on the text out of Matthew 10 that changed his life forever. And this was the text that he heard read. So Matthew 10, it reads like this. As you go, proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. Cure the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. Take no gold, no silver, no copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, no tunics or staff or sandals. 
And it was upon hearing these words that the man renounced his father's business. And this is how the story literally goes. Apparently, he stripped down butt naked and walked down the street uh, before taking a vow of absolute poverty. Today, Giovanni Francesco di Bernadon is better known as St. Francis of Assisi. You might have heard that name. He's known, uh, on top of being a saint, uh, he helped start the, the friar movement out of the Catholic Church. St. Francis's call began with a lump in the throat, an itching of the feet, a clamoring of ghosts. And while he wasn't able to fully name what it was at first, it was upon hearing these words of Jesus in Matthew that his life and his ministry began to make a little bit more sense. I love this story of St. Francis for a lot of reasons. One, telling it this way is just kind of cool. Uh, but also, I think it gets at the heart of the untold story of the name before the saint that we glamorize today. Don't get me wrong, I'm not diminishing St. Francis. Great dude. I would have totally had a beer with him back in the day. Um, <laughs> But I think that this, this hints at the tendency that we have when it comes to our past. We tend to think of these great Christians or these great leaders from history, and we want to glamorize them and sometimes forget some of the terrible things that they've done, maybe the ways that they participated in, created, or were just complicit in systemic uh, forms of systemic oppression. Or in general, I think we just glamorize the past. Why linger on those tough years those tough ministries, all the hard times trying to battle cancer or the loss of a loved one, when we can just remember the good times, right? But I think when we only focus on the good memories, the good times, that doesn't do justice to the difficulty of the past that is a part of our story. And this can be problematic. When we do this, ultimately, to people, we fail to recognize that these people, even though we have made them into saints, they're still people. They were still Christians just like each and every one of us, struggling with what it means to be a Christian in a world of seemingly chaos. Mother Teresa is a great example of this. Mother Teresa was on a train traveling through Calcutta, India one day, and she looked out the window and she saw people living in absolute filth. Everywhere she turned, she saw children whose parents had died to disease. Orphans who had no clue where their meal was going to come from that day, let alone if they would even be eating any time that week. And it was at that point that Mother Teresa felt an itching of the feet, a lump in the throat, this pool that she couldn't explain. And before long, she abandoned her life of comfort, and she spent the next 40 years or so taking in orphans in India. It wasn't until after Mother Teresa died and uh, we started going through her journals um, that we began to understand more fully the humanity of this person who we had saint, uh, made into a saint. For 40 years, Mother Teresa claims to have found herself in what St. John of the Cross calls a dark night of the soul. It's this place of darkness. It's a place of solitude. It is a place that we feel abandoned and lost. But for St. John, darkness isn't necessarily bad. I'm reminded of James Cone's words in the 60s. Black is beautiful, baby. But St. John says this. He says, when, loving, when God lovingly draws us into a dark night of the soul, there's often this temptation to just seek release from it, to blame everyone and everything for our inner dullness. The creatures of war 
which you might be thinking right now, the hymn singing is weak, worship is dull, but St. John encourages us to recognize the dark night for what it is. He tells us to be grateful that when God lovingly draws us away from the distractions, that maybe this is an opportunity to be still and to wait on God. But for 40 years, Mother Teresa was still, and she waited on God. And she claims in her journals that she rarely ever heard so much as a whisper from the Lord. When um, her journals revealed that she felt abandoned, alone, lost, hurt, troubled, she had been called to do something radical, and when she found herself in the midst of that ministry, she claims, I was blinded by the pain. <laughs> this was part of the untold story of Mother Teresa. So if you flip through your Bibles, how many of you brought Bibles today? A couple of you, that's okay, you don't have to have them. But if you have a Bible and you read it regularly, you'll probably notice that your Bible has these subheadings all throughout it, right? Are y'all like kind of feeling me? Sometimes these are great, and sometimes they trick you into thinking that a story is about something that it's actually not about. But today's passage uh, that uh, Crystal read for us a few minutes ago is typically referred to as Jeremiah's call story, or calling, or his commission. Commission is just a word meaning to be sent, and calling comes from the Latin word vocation, or vocatio, which means vocation, and uh, I think it's used a lot in the ministry and around the churches because it implies that if you're being called, then somebody on the other end is doing the calling, and so it kind of just implies that God, but essentially this is what this is. It's Jeremiah's call story, and uh, can you throw up that picture? This is one of my favorite pictures of the call story. Hopefully, yeah, here it is. This is uh, by an artist named Nicholas uh, Star Staralki. I can't pronounce his name. I can spell it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, this is one of my favorite pictures of, of this uh, call story because it's not it's not neat. It's not pretty. It's kind of messy. This is a woodcut, um, and there's a lot going on here. You've got this claw-like hand that kind of rem reminds me of the claw from a Toy Story. You know, like, the claw. <laughs> and it's coming down, and it's not clear. I mean, we, we can assume that it's God's hand, but uh, the posture of Jeremiah always strikes me as odd, too. His head, his ear is cocked up, almost as if he, he's leaning his ear to heaven, trying to hear more clearly. I hear something. Is that you, God? And his posture, it seems to me that he's kneeling. His hands are up, and it reminds me of the posture of prayer. When you're at your wit's end, and you're lost, and there's nothing else, and you just can't do anything else but fall to your knees, and you throw your hands up, and you say, God, are you there? Am I hearing you correctly? So this is Jeremiah's call story. But like these other people, and like a lot of people from history, I think his story has been glamorized a bit. If we just read it, God calls him, and then boom, the rest of Jeremiah is done. Like, it's great. This guy was a, one of the major prophets. But I think that that, like, that doesn't let us relate to Jeremiah and his story at all. So let's look a little bit at his story. So the opening verses that we read, verse 4 and 5, uh, tell us that this is Jeremiah giving us his story. Same way that we ask people to share testimonies up here every week. This is Jeremiah telling us. So it reads, the word of the Lord came to me, not to Jeremiah. So he's speaking in first person. And what Jeremiah hears are essentially these words of comfort. That's how I read the notes. God says to him, Jeremiah, I know you. Before you were even in the womb, I knew you. 
I knew your gifts. I knew your talents. I knew how your mind would work. I knew what you're capable of. I knew how you would react to situations. I know you intimately and deeply, the same way you know a loved one, the same way you know a friend. It's good news. That's kind of comforting. Maybe a little creepy, a little big brotherish, but it's comforting. <laughs> and before you were born, God says, I consecrated you. Another word taken from the Latin word sacario, which just means to be made sacred. God says, I know you, I know your gifts, and I have set you apart to do something sacred and holy. These are comforting words, maybe a little hard to live into, but with comfort comes a little discomfort every now and then, right? And so God says, I appointed you a prophet to the nation. Because I know you, because I know what you're capable of, because I've set you apart to do something holy, I am setting, I'm appointing you to be a prophet to the nations. Now, if you go back, uh, I'm not like super keen on all of this, but the first four verses, three verses of Jeremiah open with like some background on what tribes he comes from. And what we do know from those tribes is that they were kind of militantly opposed to like the nations or like big government. So like, Essentially, God is saying, this, this would be something like if you went to some dude who lives in the woods, like off the grid, and he's been there for his whole life, just living off, like, off the land, and you come to him and say, hey, you're pretty good at this whole environmental stuff. Uh, we want to send you to Washington, D.C. and have you protest uh, the White House for the rest of your life. That's kind of how I understand this of being like, you've got some gifts, and we're going to send them to you, and, you're gonna, and they're going to be radical. Um, now, if we stop here, again, Jeremiah's call, would, Jeremiah would just seem like this amazing prophet. We likely wouldn't be able to relate to his story. God speaks to him, God gives him this calling, and the rest is history. He fulfills it. But we know it's not that simple, right? Often, calls don't come to us clearly. They don't come to us in the form of God speaking audible words, but maybe they come more in the form of a lump in the throat, an itching of the feet. And so Jeremiah actually responds, and here I think this is good news. Jeremiah says, then I said to the Lord, the Lord said to me, and then I said to the Lord, truly, I don't know how to speak, for I'm just a boy. I think there's a couple of ways that we can interpret this passage. Maybe, maybe Jeremiah is throwing out an excuse. Ah, I'd love to, God, but I've got an early morning in the morning. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> I'm going to call it an early night. Maybe this is actual doubt. I think you've got the wrong person. Maybe this is logical reasoning. Reasoning away, I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, I, I think there are other people with better skills and better gifts, and I'm just not that experienced. I'm still pretty young, so maybe you just find someone else, God. Or maybe Jeremiah has believed the lie that a lot of us have believed that we're not worthy. God tells him, you're sacred, and I'm setting you apart to do something holy. And Jeremiah says, you think so? I don't really think I'm that good. Whatever it is, however you want to interpret this passage, Jeremiah's response to God tells us that hearing, that discerning, that interpreting that call when it comes from God is never straightforward. It's messy. It's gross sometimes. It comes with hurt and it comes with pain. And I ask you, how did you get here today? What did your story look like? But the good news, God tells Jeremiah, don't speak poorly about yourself. Don't speak poorly about yourself 
saying, I'm just a boy. You're going to go where I send you, and you're going to speak to whom I command you to speak to. Now, if you're like me and tend to be hesitant of authority, this probably doesn't sit right with you. Like, okay, God, just tell me where I'm going to go. But the Lord reminds him, this isn't scary. Don't be afraid. I'll be with you every step of the way, delivering you. So over the years, I've gotten pretty good at telling my call story, and I've got four versions of it. I've got like the two-minute and 20-minute version that I tell to fellow clergy members. Like when I go before the Board of Ordained Ministry and they're asking about ministry, I tell them that one. I've got the two-minute and the 20-minute version I tell to random people that I meet, like at a bar or on the street, especially people who are non-Christians, non-believers. But what I've started to realize over the past few months is that every time I tell my story, I tend to leave out a lot of the difficult moments from the past. And instead, I just focus on how I was changed by those moments. I don't even talk about them. I tend to leave out those times where God was speaking to me, where I wasn't really able to discern what God was saying. I leave out those moments where I doubted, where I made up excuses, where I felt worthless, or where I tried to reason things away. Being in Chicago is a prime example of that. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, I just finished seminary in North Carolina, and the plan was to be appointed to a church in Texas, uh, a United Methodist Church in Texas around Dallas. And so I'm gearing up for that. My wife is gearing up for that. We're ready to go home. And, uh, and then I get a call about a month and a half before being in Chicago and say, hey, we kind of want you to do some church planting, and so we want to send you to Chicago for a year. And my first response was like, Heck no, like, uh, no thank you, that's not a city for me. We're just ready to go home. We've got other plans. But I felt this itching of the feet. And so I said, okay, well, let's explore the idea, Katie. Let's see what this idea has in store for us. And as we explored, we learned more about Urban Village Church. We learned about the good ministry that Urban Village Church is doing here in Chicago with the LGBTQ community. We learn more about the anti-racism audit that they're striving to live into. And I began to feel the sickening of the heart and all the, mis- the misery I saw around me. And I said, maybe God's calling me to that place that sees that same thing and is doing something about it. And so we got here. God brought us here because, I mean, you ask my wife, she did not want to be here. It's too cold for her. <laughs> like, I don't know if I would have chosen Chicago uh, on my own. And since we've been here, I have to admit, I personally have felt more lonely, alone, insecure, abandoned, incapable, anxious, lost, hopeless than I ever have in my life. I question all the time if full-time ministry is right for me, and I sure as heck can question whether or not I'm called to be a church planter in Dallas. But I continue to feel this stirring in the blood. I don't know what it is. But I keep kind of leaning into it as much as I can. And I'm reminded and was grateful for these words from Jeremiah this week. Don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you every step of the way to deliver you. What makes these saints so easy to glamorize Is it their ability to do what people call incarnational ministry? To fully step in and embrace the position that they've been called into? Maybe. And after all, uh, St. Francis, Mother Teresa, they modeled and lived into the example of God and Christ. They did it really, 
really well. I mean, it's one thing to say, to say, you know, I'm with you, I'll be there every step of the way, but it's another thing to show up. St. Francis, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., Christian Kuhn, and Trey Hall, they showed up. Frederick Buechner once said, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And I bet if you ask any of these people their call story, how did you get where you are? If you could ask Jeremiah, how did you get to that place? They would say, well, it wasn't easy. I mean, Jeremiah was called a weeping prophet after all. He was pretty pissed about like his position. <laughs> because finding your deep gladness is not easy all the time. And so I want to leave you with this question. As we enter into Advent season, as we wait for the, and, and expect the coming of Christ's light in a world of darkness, I ask you this. What is that thing that's itching your feet? What's causing you to stay awake at night? What are you so passionate about that you can't shape it and it feels, you can't shake it and it feels like a lump in your throat? What misery is happening around you that is sickening you to do something about it? And then finally, how can your deep gladness meet the world's deep hunger? Amen. Amen.